I love therapy, and in fact, I've been going to therapy since I was around six years old. Though I talk about therapy a lot and may interview some therapists on the show on occasion, nothing that is said in this podcast should be considered a replacement for therapy. If you are struggling, I urge you to please seek guidance from a therapist because you are absolutely worth it. You're listening to Wine, Dine, and 69, a podcast about dating, relationships, sex, and self-love. I am your host, Rachel Dalton, and when this episode airs, I'm going to be at the beach. (laughs) At the beach, just ordering as many pina coladas and orders of french fries as I can. Um, super stoked about that. I don't know why French fries. Actually, I do know why French fries. The first like family vacation that I remember, my brother and I were like blown away that you could order food brought to you at the pool. And so we would order French fries and virgin strawberry daiquiris like all the time. And we're just so tickled by it. And now I, I'm as an adult, as a 32 year old, tickled by an all inclusive vacation. So some things never change. But yes, I am super excited to have a little bit of a break. Uh, The last year has been insane, like, but in the best way. I I don't know. I was thinking about this the other day. I was was journaling after doing some meditating and just thinking about how grateful I am for all of the growth that I've experienced. Um, I love who I am. And that was something that I struggled with in the pandemic. I feel like a lot of people kind of lost their sense of self and I definitely was one of them. But I think I found her again and I think I'm better than ever. Um, But that being said, it's also been exhausting, right? Like I've been at this new job for eight months and I'm just learning new things every day and it's stressful. It's it's wonderful, but it's stressful. So I'm looking forward to just having a break and um, being able to not think and just read and laze about. Uh, My friend Anna and I have like no concrete plans. And speaking of my friend Anna, happy birthday. Uh, Obviously, she's going to be with me, so I know it's going to be a great time. Uh, Also, happy birthday to my cousin Devin. Uh, Have a great day. And speaking of dates and anniversaries or whatever, birthdays, anniversaries, same thing. Um, Sunday, August 14th is the two-year anniversary of when Wine, Dine, and 69's first episode aired, uh, which is pretty crazy. I I don't know if I'm surprised that I made it this far or not. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just kind of something that I've kept plugging along doing because it makes me happy and it inspires me um, and it will continue to do so. But Uh, Yeah, super excited. Two years, and I'm so thrilled with all of the progress that the show has made, all of the guests that we've had on, the people who share their stories and share their expertise. Um, I've learned a ton, and I really hope that you have too. And um, speaking of, you know, special episodes, uh, because this is the two-year anniversary, I wanted to do something a little bit different and special. So uh, today's guest is somebody that I've known for a really long time. They are 
probably the smartest person that I know. They're definitely the kindest person that I know. Um, it's my mom. <laughs> uh, and that probably isn't a huge surprise because it's probably in the episode title. I'm probably going to put in the episode title. So I guess that's less of a gotcha than I was thinking it was going to be. But oh well. Yeah, uh, my mom, Dawn Newton, is today's guest. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, we're going to talk about her childhood her life, uh, her relationship with dating, um, love, mortality, because as listeners know, she has stage four lung cancer. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about sex as well, which I know is crazy to some people that I might talk to my mom so openly about that subject. But I don't know. It's it's just always kind of been this way. And we talk about that in, in the episode as well, how she kind of worked to develop this dynamic that we have. Um, so yeah, some people think it's weird. My friends are always like, I can't believe they were able to talk to your mom that way about stuff. But uh, yeah, we do. And I couldn't be more thrilled with the dynamic that we have. I feel like I can go to her with anything. And um, yeah, as a 32 year old, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. So I just love my mom. <laughs> I did want to correct myself, though. So I want to avoid everybody wildly scrolling uh, Netflix trying to find the movie Pure. The movie Pure that we talk about in this episode is actually on Hulu, not on Netflix. So uh, do not pass Netflix. Do not collect $200. Just head on straight over to Hulu. Other than that... Let's see, I covered birthdays, I covered the anniversary of the podcast, I corrected myself in advance, I talked about how great my mom is, I'll do that a lot in the episode, so prepare yourself for that. Uh, yeah, I think we got it all. So I'm headed off to pack for this crazy beach vacation, and um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my mom as much as I did. She is truly an incredible person, and um we had so much fun doing this. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with my beautiful mother, Dawn Newton. Broken, a tragic romance game by Apon Games is a storytelling game of tragic romance for two players about broken objects and broken hearts. Together, you and your play partner will create two characters in a relationship and over the course of 10 scenes, you will explore the ways in which the things you loved about each other crack until everything about your relationship is broken, including 10 real-life physical objects you will break over the game's 10 scenes. In Broken, the relationship will always end. Although the tragic conclusion is inevitable, there is endless potential for healing and self-discovery along the way. Broken is an emotionally deep game that explores themes of memory, identity, and loss. Broken is also full of empathy building, hope, and healing. It recreates the raw, visceral experience of going through a breakup, along with the catharsis of smashing objects, all while telling a beautiful story along the way. Get your copy of the Broken Ebook Edition now by going to bit.ly slash brokengame. That's bit.ly slash brokengame, or head to apongames.com, A-P-O-N games.com today. All right, everybody. Welcome back. This is a very exciting interview that I'm going to be doing today because uh, the guest is my mother. 
Don Newton, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, we were chatting for a little bit before we before we hit record, so it's kind of silly to be so formal. But um, so you know, uh, Mom, you you have done a few podcasts here and there because you're an author, as we will as we will discuss. Uh, but I know you're a little bit nervous, so I figured we'd just start off with some kind of like rapid fire questions, just about you sure. to get to to get to know you. So. Uh, what is your favorite color? Um, two fuchsia and, uh, royal blue. Okay. I knew about the fuchsia. I didn't know about the royal blue. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite book? Um, that one is tough because (laughs) for the longest time in my life, um, I loved, uh, Les Miserables. And then I always say that I loved it before there was a musical. Um, and uh, then I, I woke up one day and realized that um, most of my favorites were male authors because um, I didn't really start reading women authors other than than romance writers and mystery writers uh, until I was um, much older in, in college. And so now I, I really struggle um, because I have so many favorite um women authors. I, I love uh, Marilyn Robinson. I love, um, uh, see, I, I, I get uh, stuck uh, if I don't have things written down. Um, <laughs> I just love a lot of different books by women. Um, and um, yeah, let's come back to that one. All right. All right. Yeah, that's the um, that's the big thing in our family is we're always giving each other books for holidays. So, uh, all right. Well, what's what was your favorite movie as a kid? Your movie when you were a kid? Hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I don't I don't remember a, a, a young well, a young kid. It would definitely be the Wizard of Wizard of Oz and yeah, Cinderella. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I loved music. I loved um, I loved Cinderella and I loved The Wizard of Oz. I, I just the songs really captivated me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, on the subject of music, what's what's your favorite musical? I actually don't know. I'm a musical theater person and I don't even know if I know the answer to this. I know you love Les Miserables, obviously, but. Yeah. You know that that's interesting, too, because um it's kind of like the way that I am with books. I really, there's a part of me that's really stubborn and does not want to name one because there's so many that I like. But uh, when I think about uh, in the car yesterday, when dad and I were on the way back from being up north, um, I played uh, one of the songs from um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, I don't know how to love him. I sang yep. that at, at an early age. Um loved that musical but my mom would also um when i was growing up and i liked a song on television because she was a stenographer back when people used to do uh shorthand she would copy the lyrics down in shorthand Mm -hmm. so um one of my favorite songs that i've thought about lately not from a musical is um to sir with love um she wrote it all down in shorthand and then I got the uh, worked on the melody and just things like that random songs yeah yeah I'm trying to think of any other 
questions. What else do people ask about like favorites? I don't know. Well, I guess we can move on to like tell tell listeners a little bit about you, um, what you do, and just kind of uh, I know that your childhood is a very big point of um, memory for you. You reference it in, in one of your books is about is about your childhood is loosely based on your childhood. Uh, so I know that that's really important to you. Um, so we can kind of talk about that and how that shaped you. So talk a little bit about who you are now and then jump into, you know, kind of how you came to be the person that you are now. So um, first and foremost, now I'm the mother of three children. And <laughs> um, that's a strain that's kind of gone through my whole life. Um, in part because uh, I loved children when I was young. I, I was a pretty major introvert, but I loved children and um, babysat a lot. And um, I also grew up in a working class family. And as, as I've developed over time, I realized that that's really significant because I was first generation college. And um, a lot of things have de- developed from that. But also I grew up in a working class neighborhood uh, that bordered a lake. So even though we did not live on a lake, um, the lake was available and uh, we had a little beach that we could buy a membership to, which meant you get a, got a key. And um, I loved I loved being in the water. I loved uh, walking around the neighborhood. And this was, you know, before I started working, uh, before I started working outside of babysitting. Um, so summers, summers for me were, were some of the most magical times because in addition to being able to, to walk around the neighborhood, to go to the beach, it was just, um, it was just a beautiful environment. And when our family went on vacations, like uh, usually just in Michigan, um, we always had a lot of fun. And I felt like I grew up in this really, really uh, loving family. Um, as, as I got older, things got a little bit more complicated. My parents uh, argued more kind of headed for divorce when when I was in college my my dad had some anger issues uh, but but when I think about my childhood uh, before adolescence it, it was a very very positive experience yeah I think that's normal for I think that I mean I'm the same way I look I look back at like the early years of childhood before puberty as just this very glossy or glimmery time. I guess it's worth mentioning too that you are recording in my childhood bedroom, which is now your office. <laughs> yes, yes. One of your childhood bedrooms. Yeah. This the second house the second that we house had. Yes. Like, uh, and yeah. people often comment that they love the purple walls. And and I was like, yes, you know, Rachel wanted purple walls. And I also had some purple walls uh, when I was younger. Perfect. Yeah, there you go. Well, um, so your, your family, you have two sisters. So you're the, the middle of three sisters. Yes. Um, what was that like? I mean, I'm the oldest uh, with two younger brothers. Um, so I don't know what that experience is like, but from what I understand from things I've read and also, you know, being close to the middle child in our family, uh, being the middle child can be difficult. Um, so so what what was that like and how did that kind of impact your relationships with everybody in your family? Well, I think um, 
I've thought about this a lot in terms of, uh, of uh, sexuality issues and in terms of personality issues. Uh, my older sister was, was two years older than, than I, and um, she was an extreme extrovert, kind of like my mother. Um, she was comfortable in crowds, comfortable with a lot of people, and I was much more of an introvert. And um, I think as, as I grew older, I started to understand, especially, you know, after puberty, I started to understand how my sister could uh, be with guys and, and be comfortable with them and laugh. And I was much more, um, I won't say fearful, but I, reticent. I was really reticent. And I, I really liked being an introvert. And um, I... After I, I went through puberty or, or before, I mean, uh, late, uh, late elementary school, I would say, I, I developed these crushes. I called them crushes. I even wrote about them when I got to college. These just intense likings for people, um, males. And I, um, but I, I rarely wanted to act on those affections. So, you know, I, I've come to believe over time that, that I, I was demisexual and I didn't even learn what that meant until I was teaching college. Um, and I had this, one of the last few years that I was teaching, I had this two different classes that were really, really, uh, very much wanting to talk about sexuality. And when you teach creative writing, you're, you're almost always, end up getting into that territory because right. it's about identity and it's about um, things that you have in your brain that you want to get out. Um, and as this, this young woman described it to me and gave me her definition, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I always thought that I was kind of weird because I didn't date much, but it sounds like I wasn't weird. I was just not maybe the typical variety. Right. Which is fine. And there are plenty of people who, I mean, you also, we've talked a lot about, and I guess I'll, I'll add a caveat here. Uh, I, a lot of my friends think it is super strange that we have the relationship that we do where we talk so openly about sexuality and everything. Uh, so I will like, you know, caveat that here for people listening that uh, I, I love it. I love that we have this relationship, but I know it's off-putting to some people who didn't grow up you know, talking about sexuality openly in their in their homes, which I think is a loss for them, but they uh, they seem okay with it. So, um, yeah. Well, it, it's funny you should say that because um, I was thinking earlier about um, I felt like uh, our household, uh, and I, and I'd have to ask my sisters about this, but I felt like it was pretty open sexually. And um, one of the examples that I have, which is not a great one uh, of, of how I think that sexuality um, uh, evidence of it is that my, um, my father, when, when we were adolescents, would come home from work with uh, these dirty jokes written on mimeographed pieces of paper. And 
when we were older, he would sometimes post them on the refrigerator. And um, that may not have been appropriate, but by the time we all learned about um, what sex was or whatever, we would just talk about it. Um, Not a lot, but it came up. And once it was clear that we all knew the major terms and stuff, it was, it was just an open topic. And I I appreciated that um, a lot. Um, Ironically, my mother was not the person who told me about sex. And this is kind of funny too. We were in the basement with an, an older neighbor, really nice young man. Um, and he was talking about words and he talked about the F word. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on your show, but um, I'll just call it. Just, the, the podcast's called Wine, Dine, and 69. You can say fuck. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't even know, you know, there were rules back when I was a kid. So um, <laughs> I ended up saying, what does fuck mean? And it really threw him for a loop. And he just hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. And I said, I can just ask my mother. And that horrified him. Oh it horrified him that I would do that. So he, I think he felt like I was blackmailing him somehow. Um, you're like, and no, he said, I, I'm curious. And if you're not going to tell me, then I'll ask my mom. Yeah. And it was sort of, I don't even remember what he told me. But of course, the follow-up was, I went to my mom and said, you know, we were talking and this word came up and I wanted a definition and uh, he didn't want to give it to me. And so then my mom told me, and I don't even remember what she told me, but, um, um, but it, it felt like that, you know, that was what I was going to do. The, the other example that I had um, that I always talk about from childhood and, and this to me also kind of points at my, my reticence to engage uh, with with males is that my friend came to me, probably this was in the years right before I would have transitioned to junior high school, and said her cousin was interested in making out with me. And did I want to do that? And the first thing I said was, well, I have to ask my mother. Yeah, After which, awesome. of course, my friend laughed. But her yeah. brothers and sister her brother and sister were, were much older than than my older sister. And I went back and I remember looking at the this pan of vegetables that my mother was standing over. I mean, she, I'm sure she was cooking something else to go with it for dinner. But I remember looking at the water and the peas or the green beans and saying to her that, you know, this this cousin had asked if I wanted to make out and what did she think about it? And she came back with a really good question, which was, well, what does making out mean to you? And I think I said, well, you know, kissing and, you know, just, just kissing and things like that. And she said to me, well, if that's something that you want to do, um, I, I guess, that's okay. Uh, it's up to you. And make sure and, that the other person has the same definition of making out that you do. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> the the interesting thing to me is I think I wanted her to say no. Yeah. I think I wanted her to say no, and she didn't. And so often in life when I was trying to make decisions, mom, should I do this? Should I do that? She'd often say to me, 
uh, I can't make that decision for you. And um, I know that I wasn't even that that way with you guys. I wasn't that open. Sometimes I'd say, well, I think you should do this. But <laughs> yes. um, I, I made the decision. I did not want to do that. I just went back to my friend and said, well, uh, tell him thanks, but no thanks. But no thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm talking about boundaries. Um, well, I guess like it kind of comes into I'm thinking about how we've had these conversations about sex in relation to, um, I guess, gender dynamics, right? Like when you're talking about cis relationships, uh, heteronormative relationships. Um, you know, we've talked about how we've, and this will come into, a, a, I know that you wanted to touch on Roe v. Wade, so this will come into that. But, um, you know, we've, we've talked about how one of the reasons that you were so not interested in having sex or getting involved was because you knew that the risk of pregnancy was so great. And for you, looking at looking at that risk of potentially having to drop out of school or get married to somebody that maybe you didn't want to get married to or whatever, you knew that by, and I feel like I kind of, I don't even think that you taught me this, but I think that I intuitively, I don't know if it was the company that I was keeping at the time, but I think I intuitively adopted this mindset as well, which is there's so much more for a woman to lose in a heteronormative sense when they have sex. There's, you, the risk is the risk is higher. Um, you're you're more likely to get pregnancy. You can get UTIs. You can get yeast infections. Um, you know, uh, STIs are equally easy for both for both men and women to get. But I mean, especially the pregnancy part. Like, it it is so easy for your life to change in just an instant. And for me, and I think you know, you and I have talked about for both of us, um, that risk is just was just too great when both you and I were teenagers. I think we both kind of adopted that. Well, I think, I think that's, that's certainly true. And I, I try to um, acknowledge that people uh, have different, um, different interests, different personalities, um, different ways of looking at things. And I, I was a smart person and I wanted to achieve. It's ironic because since I babysat um, children early on uh, and loved it, um, I knew that I wanted children. I knew that that was one of the most important things in my life. And I even told a lot of college friends, if I can't find anyone, I will um, I will ask for a sperm donor. And I had a couple people in my head, you know, picked out for that. Um, and that was, that was in college. And cl clearly I wasn't looking for it in the, in the near term future, but, but it was something that I acknowledged. Um, you knew and that I you think, wanted that partner or no partner. Yeah. Partner or no partner. I yeah. was determined that I would have children because it was just something that I had always, always wanted. As much as I wanted to be a writer, as much as I wanted to be a successful person because I was I was smart and I, I got a lot of validation from um, things that I did in school. Um, I think that that 
knowledge that it was something that I really wanted, but the simultaneous knowledge that I was this, this person who didn't want to date, who didn't need that, that physicality of, of kissing various people. People are so different. And I think about, you know, I, I'm, I was technically a virgin when, when I got married, um, meaning that I didn't have the kind of sex okay, that I would see. have led to pregnancy. Right. Penetrative. I see what you mean. I was like, what does technically mean? But I see. Yeah, that's it. I didn't have the kind of sex that would lead to pregnancy. So um, that's really interesting. I, I'm very, very pro-choice. And one of the reasons that I'm pro-choice is that I realize people are very, very different. And to be honest, I, I'm kind of hard on on males. Uh, back to I, what you were saying. Yes, you are. <laughs> the, the woman has much more to lose. And um, young males, I think, even, even some of the best, nicest young males... Uh, we, we know that a male's sexuality peaks earlier than a female's. And I don't think sometimes they have the rationality to think it through. Whereas if you think about, uh, about the consequences of, 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 a, uh, of a sexual encounter. So every no, it's time... Like they, it's like they black out when they're horny. And then like they're like, oh... <laughs> But, but I don't even think they wake up the next morning yeah. coming to their senses. Well, I think that every time a woman has sex, unless, unless she's able to, uh, to flush it out or unless she's in a, a marriage where every new addition to the family would not bring about any problems, right. um, I think every time a woman has sex, she automatically is thinking about what were the consequences of this act. And men do not have to think about that. So, so that combined with the fact that I, while I grew up in the era, you know, I was maybe 10 in the late sixties. I was 10 in the late sixties. Uh, so I grew, grew up with the, the vestiges of the 60s, firmly in the 70s. And, you know, there was free love uh, left over. But still, uh, women who uh, delivered children outside of marriage were extremely stigmatized. I grew up with women um, who were in that situation. I grew up with women that uh, sought abortions. And um, people talk either way uh, in, in high schools about women who choose to have children, uh, women who get abortions. But 30 years later, um, the, the products of those uh, sexual encounters are, are different uh, if, if, if a woman chose to have an abortion versus a woman who chooses to uh, have a baby at a young age. And I feel like they, they both get to have their choice. They, they both get to choose what they want to do. But, but um, 
who has more control over how the rest of of a life will play out or the rest of two lives will play out the woman who has the abortion and that takes it firmly out of the the issue of conception and where someone's uh, whether a whether a uh, an embryo in the womb is a living thing. Um, whether a fetus is a living thing, I have I have comments about that. But I think the way that I've come to to look at at, at the act of sex is um, and 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 I probably would have would have said this, although I wouldn't have said it. Um, when my kids were young, I think I was part of the the group of people that, okay, you child psychologists and pediatricians will say, you know, when a kid asks, give them uh, technical terms, talk to them about love, uh, but don't give them more than they need. Make sure that it's an ongoing discussion and the person can continue to come come back to you and talk about those things. And that's what I tried to do. So when, when you asked about sex, I don't even remember what I said. I just remember I was really worried that um, your best friend at the time's mother, uh, <laughs> you told your best friend that I would have to have a, a conversation, a conversation with, with her yeah. about what yeah. I had told you. Yeah. And, and I remember later, you know, I, I don't remember how I told your uh, siblings about sex either, but I do remember one of them on the way to a, a dentist appointment um, asked about what 69 meant. And uh, the conversation was ongoing until we got into the dentist appointment. And I remember... Um, there was a piece of paper available and I'm not much of an artist. So it was just a, this little squiggle on a piece of paper. And um, we laughed about it, but we couldn't talk because yeah. there were people around, but it was a follow-up um, to kind of explain. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the way I felt about that. But, but back, I have to go back to the, the, the Roe versus Wade because I'm really, I, I have really strong feelings about this and, and I have this. Well, yeah, I have as soon this, as I asked you, like, do you want to do this? You were like, can I talk about Roe v. Wade? And I was like, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, I've got this rubric that I created and I'm sure that other people have created, um, have created something like this. I don't know if it's a rubric, a metric, whatever, but this is how I think uh, decisions should be made about abortion. So a, all women who have produced viable eggs in their lifetime are allowed to have an opinion about abortion. So both pro-life and pro-choice women who have had viable eggs at some point in the purpose, in the, in the process of their life, get to have an opinion. And I will respect either one, which is one of the reasons that I strongly respected um, your grandmother, um, my mother-in-law, because um, she she lived with her 
pro-life decisions. Uh, when it comes to men, though, um, my feeling is that the only men who get to have an opinion, who get to vote on the issue of abortion, um, and I have to look at my notes here to see how I said this, are men with viable sperm who have always used <laughs> a uh, working condom and or have always been willing to live with their partner's choice should an act of sex result in an unexpected pregnancy. No exceptions. Because yeah. immediately after an act of sex, men never have to think about whether or not conception might occur, and women always do. Yeah. And... Yeah. I have a lot more thoughts on the subject. I won't go into it now, but because I've had a spontaneous abortion, which is a miscarriage, mm -hmm. uh, and because in a subsequent visit with a um, genetic doctor when I was carrying a pregnancy after that miscarriage, because of some of the things that he said, I have come to believe that even very nice good, well-intentioned men can be completely clueless about a lot. About a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too, because, you know, we talk about, you talk about protection and I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with friends where, where, you know, I ask, oh, but did you use protection? And they go, oh, like I'm on birth control or like if it's a guy, oh no, she's on birth control. And it's like, STIs are still a thing, yo. Like that, like that's still some, like even if you're not worried about pregnancy, there is other things that you should completely be worried about right now. So. Well, and, and I think, you know, and, and this is going to sound re really egotistical in a lot of ways, but, you know, I, I used a, a couple of different forms of, of birth control, not, not a wide range, mostly a diaphragm and, um, uh, birth control pills. Uh, but keep in mind, I, uh, did not have the kind of sex that could get me pregnant, um, before I got married. So mostly I used birth control within a marriage situation. Right. Um, but I had a great memory. I took other medicines for my asthma. Um, I remembered to take the birth control pills every day that I needed to when I took birth control. Oh, um, shoot. I got to take mine today. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> Not that it matters. It's like, what if you don't have a great memory? Right. Or what if, what if you're a male who is uh, having a relationship with a woman and you just leave it to her? Now, I think this is dicey because I would have a hard time with someone who said to me every day, did you take your birth control pill today? Did you? I mean, right. I really struggle with that. But on the other hand, it just seems very cavalier. I mean, putting that condom on, at least, I mean, at the very least, makes a man think about conception. And, and the best part of it, too, is it does provide protection about the ST, STDs or STIs. 
And so, yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, men, men need to have, need to have the responsibility of thinking about it. Yeah, I don't disagree. I completely don't disagree. But, um, you know, you kind of brought up, we've been talking before I hit record about the way that you did talk to me about sex. And, um, you know, I can just kind of go over it a little bit because this is one of, of like, of, I mean, you are an excellent parent, but there are a few moments that really stick out to me as I'm just like, man, if I had kids, I want to, I would want to do it exactly the way that she did that. Like that was like a really badass parenting moment. And this is one of them, which is when I was in the third grade, I was eight, I was in the third grade and we were doing like geometry and my teacher couldn't remember the shape, a hexagon or whatever. So people were giving her suggestions and I was like, a sexagon? And everybody laughed because we were eight <laughs> and immature. Um, but I came home and very much like you being like, well, I have to ask my mom. I was like, like, what's what's this? Why did everybody laugh when I when I said this? And you kind of didn't mention it at the moment. But the next time that we were up north at the cottage, you were like, let's go take a walk. So we took a walk and we walked all the way to the end of the association and we had a conversation where you told me the bare bones of how it works. And I was number one, incredulous as to how that could feel good. But also I was just like, why didn't I think of this? They're obviously puzzle pieces um, that like are meant to go together. <laughs> like I remember thinking that when I was eight, um, like, of course, you know. But we walked and, and I asked questions and we talked about it. And you you did tell me, you know, at that time that I'd prefer to, for you to wait because it's a really big responsibility um, and your life changes a lot when you start doing it. Um, but I, I remember you saying, but if at any point you think that you do want to start doing it or you find yourself in a relationship or a situation where you feel like you need to start, you know, taking birth control – please come to me. I will not judge you. I will take you to the doctor. We can go and we can get what you need and have a conversation. Again, I would prefer if you waited till marriage. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Um, but I want to make sure that if you are going to do it, that you do it safely. Which I just... I shouldn't have been surprised that that's how you handled it, but just the, the older I get it, I, the more I'm just like, man, like you hit all the right points. You you gave me the definition. You made it personal and told me about your experience, which would maybe horrify some people, but I host the Wine Dine 69 podcast, so whatever. <laughs> um, and and yeah, you you hit the points like you you made it personal and explained it to me, and you know you answered my questions. You weren't weird about it. You know you didn't try to shame me into feeling like it was something that I shouldn't want. Like you know you were explaining to me, it's a natural thing to have you know these urges, especially as you get older. And you you said I would prefer that you waited for a number of reasons. But if you're not going to, don't feel like you need to keep it from me because I want to make sure that above all, you're safe. And like, I just look back at that still and I'm like, man, like really, really excellent parenting. I got to hand it to you. Well, I, I didn't remember the, the details of that. Um, I'm glad that I approached it that way. I, I think I probably 
was not as open-minded um, when you had your first boyfriend and nobody um, wanted me to have sex with him and I didn't everybody so we can rest assured that <laughs> so I, I avoided think- that and everybody who knows that situation is sighing a huge sigh of relief right now <laughs> so I think um yeah I think mothers can say really uh rational things when they're not in, in a moment of uh um yeah yep no I get it But I guess like that kind of makes me wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on talking about sex and parenting? Like, I don't think you should have done anything differently, but what are your thoughts on, you know, families that just, I have some friends who their their families never talked about it. They let the school take care of it or they, um, you know, like it was very much like a purity culture thing, like your purity is to be prized, that type of thing. Like, what are your thoughts on, like, the different, you know, I mean, I don't want to, like, shame anybody for, you know, parenting that I disagree with. I'm not a parent. But um, as somebody who thinks that you did it really right and I turned out pretty fucking great, like, (laughs) I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts are and and the dangers of of not being open with your your kids. Well, I think... I mean, most of the time, I feel like uh, people should have the opportunity to raise children um, the way they feel inclined. Um, I think it's a little bit more difficult when um, parents tell other people how to raise their their kids. Um, having said that, that you know the sh- the shaming factor is is a is a big deal um i wanted to be able to talk to you guys little by little as the doctors when i say doctors i mean the the yeah, experts that you read parenting yeah. books or psychologists i wanted to to do it that way and to have the information freely available um, the purity thing just seems like, um, for me, you know, maybe, maybe it could work, uh, but if it becomes something with a ceremony attached to it, then it becomes Especially less private. Especially when it's the girl and her, and it's the girl and her dad, she's tying herself to her, oh, it grosses me out so much. Well, the, that part of it, I... I'm suspect of when it becomes an external thing that external people know, or um, I, I worry about that. The, the sex education thing, um, I, I have some really interesting thoughts about because I was fine with uh, the three of you being given sex education in class. I, I wanted to see the materials, I believe, that most of you knew all of that ahead of time. And I do think that it, if parents get to their that point where the school asks them to sign papers, they really should take care of, of divulging that information themselves. Right. Uh, because that's, that's their right. And that that's their possibility, uh, not possibility. What word am I looking for? Responsibility. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
Um, I had I had another thought that just left my head, but but another one of the thoughts that I had in my head that was interesting was I was seeing some of the protest for Roe v. Wade yesterday, which I, I obviously think uh, a woman's uh, right to abortion is is essential. But a woman had brought her young daughters to a um, protest and. I I know the age for telling people about sex is is much younger than it than it used to be, which I think is fine. Um, you told your youngest. I remember I was at camp when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, and I still have the letter where you told me where you wrote to me when I was away at camp, and we're like, we told we told your brother about sex. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so so I was I looked at that and and I had two simultaneous feelings at the same time. I was like, wow, I think it's great that this woman took her kids to the march. And then I thought, well, what do you think about um, the girl's ability to make that decision for herself? Um, that that's what she wanted to um, protest. And I thought, parenting is indoctrination. Let's be real. <laughs> well, that's the thing that that's the thing that I think I struggle with is that yeah. you want to be able to give your children the tools to make good decisions. But in so many ways, you can't. I mean, it's like when um, the election with George W. Bush, you know, your father was talking a lot of of uh, negative stuff about uh, that particular candidate, and the, I the was word pinhead came up pretty frequently, if I recall. <laughs> I was really worried that um, your brother might carry it to school and repeat it to. Um, his friend whose parents were, were on a, a more conservative, uh, um, had a more conservative viewpoint. And I think it was this weird thing I had about protecting the, the sanctity of, of an individual's opinion, which you can't really do because parenting is indoctrination, but I think I want it to not be <laughs> indoctrination. Do you know what yeah. I mean? No. And, and you can't. You can't. I mean, y- you just can't for the safety reasons. You know, you you have to teach your children, no, you can't run in the road. No, you can't put your hand on the burner. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about these things. Right. Yeah, I think that's a uh... An interesting point. And I, I do see the challenge there because you do want, you know, your, I remember you were thrilled when I was thinking of voting green because you were like, oh my gosh, yeah, like, that's great. That's great that you're, you know, thinking about what you might want to do outside of, you know, what, what we do. So, um, right. And that's also my, my, you know, desire for a, a more than two party system. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, God knows we need it, but, um, well, I'm wondering, 
Well, first, I wanted to say there's a movie out there that listeners should check out. And I think you and dad should have like a date night and watch this movie because I think you would both find it fascinating and disgusting and appalling at the same time. It's called Pure. And and it's about this like purity camp. Are you writing it down? Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. I saw it a few years ago, but it's called Pure. And it's about the purity culture and a camp where like a bunch of girls like do this purity ceremony. But things don't go really according to plan because the goddess Lilith has some things that, you know, might have to come up. So it's really good. Um, I was really surprised at how much I liked it. So yeah, the movie's called Pure. I think I saw it on Netflix. But um, kind of moving away because, I mean, you're, you're – Identity as as a mother and as, um, you know, a, an intelligent person and somebody who, you know, has had sex and somebody who is interested in these social issues are all parts of your personality. But I mean, um, you know, we don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to be able to touch on a really major part of your identity is as a writer. And um, like kind of talk to me a little bit about that, about how you kind of, was it kind of like having kids where you just knew that it was something that you needed to do? Um, you know, and then I know that, I know that you met dad, you and dad have a very uh, painful for you, but in retrospect, wildly romantic <laughs> tale of meeting in college and being friends on and off for a very long time before deciding that you're madly in love with each other. And I think our together have been married for over 30 years now, 30 Oh, in two days, it'll be your anniversary. Yeah. So um, the thing with the the writing is um, I knew when I was young that I liked to write. I wrote poems, song lyrics, and then I wrote essays and short stories pretty early in life, a lot in high school. And and I, I won some awards in high school and I participated in forensics, which is speech competition. And, and I usually wrote um, first person essays for, for that. Um, uh, but I, I was a smart person and somehow my sisters and I decided that we were definitely going to college. So my life was a lot about um, doing really well in school and then you know having a job in high school so that I could um, afford to go to college, make money to go to college. Um, and you know ironically, one job led to another when you're trying to pay back student loans, you don't have as much freedom as as, as you do if, if your parents are able to play, pay for your college wholly. And um, I, I, in, in high school, I thought about other professions like uh, being a doctor or a scientist because I loved science, but I was so drawn to the writing and literature. And the first semester of college, uh, I had a, I had a partial writing scholarship. So I did have to declare English as one of my majors. I was going to have another one, but I watched myself during the first semester of college. And uh, that's what 
I put all my time and energy into is writing my English papers, writing my um, whatever essays or, sh- or short stories I needed to write for my writing classes. And I didn't put as much energy into other things, although I still love science and I like to, to read about science. Um, so as I worked over the course of my life, mostly it was about having kids providing them a a supposedly better life than I had as a kid, although I never felt deprived of anything as a kid, but more lessons, more extracurriculars. Um, And one thing led to another, and I I mostly wasn't able to get a a stable job as I had hoped. Um, I did a lot of adjunct work because I decided that the teaching was really important to me and I didn't seem to have the wherewithal to be able to hold down a a full-time job and raise my children at the same time. And then um, I got diagnosed with cancer um, at the age of 52, 53, uh, right in that border. It wasn't both ages. It was the week between 52 and 53. It really was. Yeah. (laughs) So um, so I, I hung on to my adjunct job one more year and um, tried to make it work. But since I, I'd originally been given uh, six to 18 months to live, and then I was given, you know, maybe two to three years to live. Um, Side I'm, note, I'm, it's, been, it's been almost 10 years for everybody listening. It's been well, that's the thing is that... Um, I'm an outlier now. And this fall, I uh, celebrate or whatever, 10 years. um, And the last few years have been the time in my life when I have really felt legitimate calling myself a writer because I've been able to publish a couple books. Um, Prior to that, I had throughout the course of my life published in small literary magazines, which is what so many people have to do these days. People who are not bestseller writers, who aren't embraced by the top magazines or the top publishers. Most of us who teach and write, um, we, we embrace both parts of our lives and the kind of publications we get are, are, are not the kind that make us any money. They, um, they are, they augment what we make as teachers. And uh, I've been disabled slash unemployed since um, a year and a half after I um, uh, left work, my adjunct position. And that's largely because with two to three years projected for my life, I wanted to spend it with my youngest who was still in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet now with, with a longer life, I've, I've been given this gift of, of being able to write enough so that I could publish things from earlier in my life in terms of full-fledged books. Yeah. Which is pretty, I mean, what, I, I mean, I want to ask, I, first I'll have you talk about the books that you've published, but then like, kind of want to hear what you're working on now. Okay, so the books that I've published, um, the first book I published was a memoir on cancer. 
And uh, it's important for, for me to say that is not the first book that I completed. Uh, the book that I completed is the novel that I published second called The Remnants of Summer, which had a, uh, a complete draft that I circulated um, in the year 2001. Ironically, the year of 9-11, I was circulating it uh, at the time that 9-11 occurred. I remember writing to literary agents um, and telling them how sorry that I was uh, when they would send me uh, an email saying, I've been looking at your book. I wanted to look at it before now, but things have been horrible here. Yeah. Um, well, and your book is largely about grief. Yeah, and my book, my book is about grief. And and at that time, I, I mean, I'd had an agent back when I was younger, before I had children, the year before I had you. I had an agent. I, I had given her a, um, a collection of short stories that she tried to market. Um, and she said, well, you know, um, I couldn't get this one after we tried for a while. I couldn't get this one out, but... Um, finish the novel you're working on and, and uh, maybe we can have a two book deal. And then I just um, got busy with parenting and it took, was not me, an easy child. <laughs> took me a while. So, um, so the, uh, the remnants of summer, my second book is a novel, um, but it, it has Michigan as, as its place. And I captured a lot of my childhood in that book, although it is, fiction. So the events that take place in there, while some of them were drawn from things that happened in my childhood, uh, they are not real events, but they do capture, uh, because I started writing it before my parents died, they do capture the grief that I felt after my parents died very close together in 1993 when I was pregnant with my second child. Uh, when did the first book I wrote as I was going through cancer, um, and when I say going through, what I, I should clarify, I'm still going through cancer, but it was the first years, the first year of my being on a, um, a cancer drug for stage four lung cancer. And it's a drug that, as they advertise on television, gives you more time, but does not cure you of cancer. You still have right. stage four lung yeah, there's no, um, there's no remission. Um, it's a, it's a, and that's what I have to explain to people. It's a matter of people are like, oh, you know, she's been around for ten years. Like that's incredible. Is she cured? And it's like, no, we're just really, really lucky. <laughs> you know, I, I was on a, a message board. I'm on a like support group for people who have and are lo people loved ones of people who are on the drug that you're on right now. And um, a woman had posted saying that her her husband was given a quote. And she was like, please, like, please, like, can can people please just give me some hope that, like, it might be longer than, than they're saying that it is. Like, these are the drugs that he's on. And I was like, well, my mom was diagnosed in 2012, and uh, she was given around that same amount of time, and she is still kicking. So, and everybody was just so overjoyed. It gave it gave everybody a lot of hope. So yeah, it's, uh, but it's it's definitely challenging. And I mean, I think it's interesting that you wrote Remnants of Summer first, 
but both the memoir and Remnants of Summer really do deal with the subjects of grief, just in in different ways. You know, uh, in the first, in Remnants of Summer, it's it's the grief of of losing another person, and in uh, in Winded, it's looking at your own mortality in the face, which is yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. But but I know it's crazy. It's like you've published these two books, and now it's like, well, what what are you what are you doing now? Like if you know, I, I feel like you keep being like. Well, like, all right, I did this thing, so so now I'm just gonna lay back, and then it's like, nope, you still. There's a TikTok I'll have to send you, which is just kind of like people are dancing, and then like it, the 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 song comes to this huge crescendo, and then they're like, whew, relax, okay, we can relax now, and then the music starts back up again, and they're like really jarred because they're like, wait, I wasn't expecting it to keep going, so right, that's kind of how I I imagine. Uh, well, I think I think actually that's a really good metaphor for where I find myself in life now because um, there is there is a ton of downtime and I never feel like I'm able to explain this to people very well. Um, I I have down days and by that I mean I wake up I'm in a fog even if I take my, my drugs, which were a combination of, you know, uh, uh, antidepressants, uh, a, a stimulant that, that helps me think, um, things are really foggy. I'm really achy, uh, spots in my body with, um, uh, that used to have, you know, my, my lung cancer metastasized to my bones before it was diagnosed. Um, I have, I have some really bad days in terms of being able to function and um, I'm not with it. My, my memory, which used to be amazing, has really deteriorated um, and I, I'm not as fast. The world has sped up around me. I, I can't speak as quickly. I can't answer questions as quickly. Um, there are some really difficult things uh, and, and the constant doctor appointments, because if you're being kept alive, uh, you do have to be checking in with doctors uh, who are helping you not only take care of the cancer, but uh, the side effects of your cancer drugs, which are um, numerous significant. and yeah. um, they're significant. I don't want to s- I, I don't begrudge. I mean, I, I'm so happy that I've had the ability, but I will put in a little uh, plug here for universal health care. Uh, I am privileged in that uh, I have health insurance. And many people who are given the diagnosis that I'm given, uh, they don't get to have the test done that shows that they have a um genetic mutation that might be uh, conducive to the $8,000, $9,000 a month right. pill right. that uh, insurance helps to pay for. So um, it, it's a funny world that I live in. It's got, it's got upsides, it's got downsides, but it, but it clearly shows the, the privileges that come from, from having health insurance. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, in the same in the same Facebook group, people were like, "How much do you pay for your Tigresso?" Like, and it was people from around the world. And in Australia, it was sixteen dollars. And then 
in another wow. place it was like 30,000 euro. Like it's just, it's, it's wild. So, but it's, uh, yeah, no. And, and it's, it's funny. A lot of people, you know, say, say to me, and I, I'm sure you get this too, like, wow, like you're able to talk about this so matter of factly. And it's like, well, like it's part of, it's part of the story. It's part of the journey now. And, you know, you like all you can really do is be grateful, right? Like, and try well, to be as as possible. I, I will put in though, I will put in this, this thought. Um, I do always reserve um, the right not to be grateful. And oh. <laughs> I think that's on, it's on behalf of other people, but it's also on behalf of myself. I feel that um, I, I, I could I could talk for a long time about ways that it's affected me and how um, I do feel like I've, I've sort of become marginalized in that I don't speak with people. uh, I don't speak a lot with, with people at large about my cancer because uh, I've, there's just too much to say. And, um, if, if you get to live longer and you complain, there's almost yep. sort of this, this, well, you know, you shouldn't complain because so many people don't get to live longer. Exactly. So you, you end up the way I describe it, uh, you end up in this different co- cohort. Um, you don't get to complain about the fact that you'll probably never meet any grandchildren that you'll have because you're in the cohort of the person who has gotten to live longer with cancer. So you can't compare yourself with the average person who lives, you know, longer, maybe in their seventies who, who gets to have grandchildren. So it's, it's a weird sort of dynamic. Yeah, I I get what you're saying, but I mean, it would just be better if cancer didn't exist and everybody got to live into their, you know, eighties. Right, right. As, as well as other disease. But, but what I'm saying is you, people do have to learn at, and um, and that's what I've come to is you you have to learn how to live with the chips on your shoulder, mm-hmm. and um, and that's one of the things that that I feel really strongly about is I keep these chips on my shoulder. There's there's several of them. There's this this chip of growing up working class and feeling that I never quite moved above it, even though. Uh, by marrying my husband and living a life uh, without cancer for for fifty years, uh, I was help. I was able to to uh, position my children for living a middle class life. Although, who knows if if they'll be able to uh, to continue with it? I mean, uh, that's one of the things about about the world now is is classes. It's getting it harder and harder to be yep. uh, even lower middle class. Um, yep. uh, but but I feel that my class and my cancer, uh, those are chips on my shoulder. And I try to move them off, but sometimes it's hard. And so a good day is when I can just look around I can be mindful. I mean, I just got back from a a, a five day vacation where the weather was perfect. Uh, 
I was able to have a variety of activities with my husband. Uh, it, it just and, and on those days, when I'm just appreciating the present and appreciating what the moment brings me, I can pretty much just swap those chips right off my shoulder. Yeah. Um, but I know that there are days when they're going to come back. Yeah. And I feel that I have to accept that that's just part of the process, that that I love it when I when I hear about people who can say, oh, I'm so grateful. I'm just I'm just grateful every day. And and I and I say, good for you. I'm not. I I try to applaud myself when I can be grateful. But to if I'm honest, and most of my life I've I've tried to be honest, I I'm not there. I I'm living in this world where it's okay for me to be mostly grateful. Yeah. Um, and to have some days where those chips are not on my shoulder. Um, and, and those are the best. Yeah. If that's, and that's, I think what I've learned too, is that there's going to be some days we're able to look around and, and just have that gratitude. But there are other days where just, that's really hard to do 100% of the time. It is for anybody. So I definitely can't do it. So it's, uh, it's difficult, but I mean, and I think another thing that's worth, you know, mentioning, and I think, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're in this, this cohort of people who have survived for such a long time. But I think it's also important to mention that that doesn't mean that you don't struggle on a day to day basis, you know, just because your tests are coming back clean and you know we've talked about a lot, the, a lot about this as a family just because your tests are coming back clean doesn't mean that you're not in pain doesn't mean that you're not struggling with side effects doesn't mean that you're not facing your mortality in the face every day like and i think that as you know your child that's been an important thing for for me to learn too just you know well i see that's what i just realized that's what i was starting to say but i get i get uh I lose my train of thoughts is that um, people haven't, I, I don't believe people have yet studied what is the effect on children of um, or, or offspring because children means age limited offspring can be your whole life. What is the effect on offspring who have to live with a parent who has been given this um you're only supposed to live for a certain number of years, but we're hoping you'll exceed that. Um, these these somewhat so-called miracle cases where uh, the drug, for whatever reason, holds a person uh, living longer, living longer, and and there's no clear explanation um, because there's an element of, of always waiting for the shoe to drop. Um, yep. I call it preemptive grief. Yeah. And, and, and what's been the effect on my children? Um, we, we don't know that. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, I, I don't know how much harder that has made your lives. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know, but I, I do know that for a very long time, it was just, are the scans good? Are the scans good? Okay, cool. 
Like, you know what I mean? And and then it's it's like, no, like just because the scans are good doesn't mean that there aren't things that are happening. So it's definitely been yeah. a, a thing to come to as as a family. But I guess like in the last few minutes, kind of talk to me about what you've learned through all of this, you know, what you've learned through these chips on your shoulders, what you've learned, you know, you have this, uh, I don't have my bracelet on right now, but you, you have this quote in your, in your book that says dying with cancer is helping me to learn to live with hope. And I always thought that that was a really profound line. Um, so like, what are some things that you think you've learned through just the course of your life from from being raised in the working class family from you know losing your parents months apart from each other um to you know not dating and just being very much uh, a wallflower you used to describe yourself as that not my word yeah. um, but yeah like what what are some things that you think in this course of of this life of yours like if you had to give pieces of advice or wisdom you know I mean, this podcast is going to be around forever, so it's on the internet. So, well, um, what you want to say? First, I, I give you a shout out. Uh, my my daughter uh, Rachel uh, made up these lovely bracelets um, that say "Live with Hope," and they're purple with blue lettering, very vibrant. Um, and, and I wear that, and my kids wear that. I think, um, I think as a person who's, who's been an introvert and who has always had more interests than I could manage, um, a person who had really severe asthma as a kid um, and now had to deal with um, cancer is uh, what I've learned most is uh, – about uh, giving, I'm most likely, the person that I'm most likely to be hardest on is, is myself. Although I, I know as I'm getting older, I can be impatient with other people. So what I try to do is, is give myself a break and not be too hard on myself. Um, I still expect a lot of myself but I try not to beat myself up for the things that I'm not able to accomplish. Um, I'm trying more to live in the moment. Um, I know that mindfulness is a buzzword now, but for me, it really helps because as a person who spent a lot of time in my head, analyzing things and often finding myself wanting. Um, I haven't been a negative person and yet I am hard on myself um, and can see the, uh, the downsides of life. I do think it, it ends up being about balance. And if you're if you can find ways, like with dancing, which I love to dance, even though I'm not particularly talented, I love to dance uh, solo. It brings me a lot of joy. It gets me out of my head. Mm -hmm. I love to sing. Um, I'm trying more and more to sort of tabulate the things that make me really happy. And instead of looking for wide swaths of time 
in which something might be sustained. Um, I, I appreciate sort of um, interludes. So if I can have an, an interlude where I read for um, 50 minutes in the afternoon, um, it reminds me of my childhood when before I worked, I would go to the library, get a huge stack of books and come home and read all afternoon after I'd, I'd been to the beach and been swimming, just read all afternoon. And now if I can do that for 50 minutes, wow, that's really, that's really a good afternoon. Um, I have always been a listener. But as I get older, I, I value that much more than I used to. And I, I, I value the fact that I am a listener and I value the act of listening even more. I feel like our world is so fast paced. Uh, there are lots of reasons why people don't really have time to listen to people. Sometimes it's boring to listen to people. Uh, sometimes people talk about things that you're not really wanting to listen to. So I do limit my listening. Um, I'll admit that while I was with your father on a business trip, um, there was a stranger someplace who was talking for reasons that weren't really clear to those of us who were listening. And I just walked away because I thought, all right, you know what? Uh, I don't know how much longer my life is going to be, but you don't are not gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to listen to you. But other people, other people that want to talk to me um, and that want to sit down and talk, I, I like listening. Yeah. We need to listen more. Yep, I can definitely agree with that. And I think that's a good, good piece of advice um, to end on. But I do want, you know, you have a you have a blog, um, you have a social media presence, and I'll link your books on Amazon, just kind of talk about those things and where people can find you. If they want um, to keep up with you and glean more wisdom. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. First of all, I'll give you the title of my books. Um, the The memoir, which was uh, 2019, is Winded, colon, a memoir in four stages. And uh, that's because I have stage four cancer and also because there are four sections of the book. Uh, the, the novel is The Remnants of Summer. That's 2021. Um, they are available on Amazon. Uh, there's a local bookstore in Michigan, Schuler Books, uh, that sells it. And actually, any book, any uh, bookstore that you might want to order a book from, uh, and and of course, I I usually plug independent bookstores. Um, you can order those books. Um, I'm I'm on and off social media. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in my 60s and I still don't understand whether or not I should give out my blog address. I will admit I, I'm not always good at keeping up on it. And the last few times that I've opened it, 
there are so many inappropriate contact notices I get that on your blog. Yeah. And then oh. in the blog, you get these, um, yeah, I get really inappropriate contact. sliding into the DMS. Pardon? People sliding into the DMS. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> learned that expression from you guys. I still kind of don't know what it means, but it happens all the time on my blog. So I'm like, okay, so do I Look not, should I not be putting? So what I do say to people is, okay, you've got my name, Dawn Newton, find me on WordPress. Okay. Um, not going to give you the, uh, not going to give you the address, but find me on WordPress, find me on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. And I can, I, I won't link the WordPress, but I'll, I'll link your, uh, the, which, which Instagram account is it that you use for the writing? Are they both uh, for your writing? Uh, but I, I answer both of them on, okay. on the writing. All right. All right. Well, um, mom, this has been probably my favorite interview I've ever done. Thank you for sitting down with me to do it. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and as always, your your vulnerability and strength and just willingness to to share. Um, I love you very much and I appreciate it. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was honored to be asked and it is, um, I am very proud of you and your accomplishments. And of course I missed you and your brothers when when dad and I were in front of the water. Um, I family's really important to me and I'm I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of you too. And yeah, thank you listeners for being here. I'm gonna go and cry now. Um, <laughs> thank you everybody for being here. I appreciate, I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation as much as I did. Um, I'll link where you can reach out to my mom uh, on various places on the internet. And um, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Wine, Dine, and 69. I'm your host, Rachel Dalton, here with my badass mom, Don Newton. And let's keep talking. Bye.